0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. Later in the show, we preview the Texans-Tampa Bay game, hit on Texans offensive concerns, and the Astros managerial search. But Sean, the NFL trade deadline came and went. Were you surprised or disappointed the Texans didn't make a deal? Not
1: really surprised, maybe a little bit more disappointed, because before the deadline, uh, you know, came and went at 3 p.m., you knew what the Texans absolutely needed. They had one healthy tight end on the roster, and his name is Dalton Schultz, and oh yeah, by the way, he sucks at run blocking, and they don't use him too much in the pass game either with any regularity, and so I figured like, hey... Maybe there's a tight end out there that the Texans could probably go get for a fifth or a sixth round pick, at least just somebody to provide some sort of depth instead of, I think they signed a rookie or somebody like that. They brought in somebody. Maybe, no, they just called Dalton Keenup off the practice squad. That's it, and we already know what he's all about. Andrew Beck is probably your third option, the fullback. I mean, he's lined up as a tight end at some points in the preseason and training camp and maybe in a couple times this regular season, but that's where they are, and I figured for sure, like, they're going to look at this position. But D'Amico Ryan said, hey, there was nothing out there for us. The process was smooth smooth working with Nick Casario in it, and um, I was just a little disappointed because – There's always somebody out there that could be moved. It's just is what you're willing to give up interesting enough to the team that you're trying to make a deal with. And apparently it wasn't for the Texans.
0: Yeah. And most any trade you could have made at the deadline would have been for a rental for a few weeks. And it's not worth giving up draft capital for a team nowhere near ready to make a Super Bowl run. And it's worth remembering. And Sean, people forget about this. They'd already given up a six-round pick for Kenyon Green, uh, or Kendrick Green, I should say, a fifth for Josh Jones. The O-line injuries really handcuffed them at this point. Out for the season so far, let's look at the list. Quesenberry, Patterson, Kendrick, Kendrick Green, and Kenyon Green, and the totally forgotten Charlie Heck. That's five guys. You know, I get it, only one of those guys is a starter, but that's all your depth. And until Juice Scruggs steps on the field, Sean, I'm going to say, for all intents and purposes, he's out for the season. Until he gets out there every week, it's one or two more weeks, one or two more weeks. Since he's not playing, it's going to be at least 11 weeks since he hurt the hamstring.
1: Yeah, and hashtag hamstring, right? Um, That's... (laughs) Uh, that that's one of those things that varies i think really from team to team but certainly from guy to guy in terms of how they're going to attack that particular injury with a player and i mean they're two totally different positions but you saw at least last year, how the Texans dealt with Derek Stingley's hamstring. I mean, something that probably gets him back in a seven- or eight-week time span. He was done for the year. You know, missed the final nine games of the season. He's missed a ton of games already this season, and there's been no update on him, at least over the course of the last couple of weeks. And the last time that we asked D'Amico Rines or Nick Casario about it was, "Ah, you know, well, we'll wait and see. It's a process, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's a rookie. Maybe they feel like, you know, they're attacking this the right way and sure they'd like to have him back, but they don't want to get reckless and rushing him back when they feel like, you know what, we've been able to piece this thing together just fine without him and take care of the most important thing. And that's keeping CJ Stroud, not just alive, but upright uh, most of the time since week two. So, you know, I'd like to have, you know, more quality depth. You can get depth anywhere. It's the lack of quality that Texans have really had an issue with. I was thinking about this earlier today. You look at left tackle, left guard, and center at this point in time. Never mind you're going to be on your fifth different starting offensive line. But you've now run through four different left tackles, four different left guards, four different centers now, assuming Michael Dieter's the dude and – by all indications, he has to be at this point in time, right? There ain't no talk of Jimmy Morrissey playing center right now, and I certainly didn't see him doing such in the 10, 15 minutes I had to watch practice this morning. Shaq Mason at right guard is the only offensive lineman, not on wood, <laughs> that has been 100% healthy all season long. And correct me if I'm wrong, but since Titus Howard has not yet played the position in which the Texans are paying him and have made him the fourth highest to not play at right tackle this year. You've had, uh, let's see, Austin Deculus, Michael Dieter for one snap, George Fant for most of the season, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Josh Jones play a right tackle for a hot minute? You've spent through all of your depth at every single position on this offensive line except for right guard. And some way, somehow, we're still talking about this Texans team in particular, their quarterback, C.J. Stroud, and continuing to improve week in and week out, obviously, this most recent loss notwithstanding. But it's just been impressive in that regard.
0: Most teams carry maybe eight guys on game day in the offensive line. I just went through the list. They have five guys that have season-ending surgeries. Yeah, Titus Howard. Didn't play for a while. Larry Tunsil didn't play for a while. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And I, I, anybody that thinks, oh, man, the Texans, what a terrible job they've done at depth on the offensive line. Nobody expects this. You can't expect this. That's like getting mad at the Astros because their entire starting pitching staff this year basically got hurt or underachieved because they were tired from last year. It's like you can't get mad at, hey, Astros, why didn't you have 15 starting pitchers ready to go this year? (laughs) You know, well, I'm sorry. You typically do not need 15 starting pitchers in a year. And the Astros, remember, they lost, you know, Luis Garcia, Jose Arquiti, Lance McCullers. Um, There's guys that they've lost we've forgotten about because they have lost them so long ago. It's the same thing with the Texans O-line. And I don't see how you fix the terrible running game, Sean, with the O-line injuries this year, moving Titus back to right tackle, playing – a better left guard. Is it possible with the Scruggs injury? You know, until Scruggs get back, again, I'm considering him out. Like he is Snuffleupagus. I don't even know if he exists anymore. I hear about. I hear he exists, but I don't know. I haven't heard from him. We haven't. Yeah. They barely mentioned him. Whatever. And what what also is silently killing the running game? You said it. The tight ends. Dalton Schultz is a poor. Blocker, And then you don't have Brevin Jordan now because he's banged up and Quatoriano just went on the IR.
1: Who's your best run blocking tight end? Tegan Quatoriano. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you're hurting there. But I tell you what, if 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 I could just use one game as, as an example as to the ultimate reason, the main culprit as to why the Texans run game stinks outside of just the way that they get to it, which I think is a big issue as well. They do it too often, too early, and there's tendencies that are being quickly and easily identified by the opposition. Uh, I did a piece on SportsRadio610.com earlier this week if you'd like to check it out. Um, Just a couple, three main questions that I kind of hit on as why the offense, particularly the run game, has struggled. But, my gosh, I mean, just looking at this last game against Carolina, I mean, how many times did you notice Titus Howard just whiffing? on you know his block now I saw a couple of just egregious ones and for a guy that is lauded as being an incredibly athletic guy for his size fine whatever it just looked like he had no idea what to do when he pulled and he was late on picking up that landmark every time and at other times George Fant looked completely lost in the run blocking scheme along with Laramie Tunsell and It's just got me and I'm sure a lot of other people feeling a little bit bitter and salty about how much money you're paying these guys, this offensive line in general. I mean, the the best bet, you know, the best bang for your buck on that offensive line right now, and again, knock on wood because of the health situation, but because he's actually a well-rounded player, Shaq Mason. You know, you just paid him about five, six months ago in the offseason, and that looks like the best deal because you made Laramie Tunsil for the second time the highest-paid left tackle in the biz, and I get it, number one, and number 1A is to protect the quarterback. But, I mean, my goodness, you've got to at least be average in run blocking, and he looks below average. Titus Howard looks below average for a guy that I know is playing out of position, but my goodness, for an athletic guy his size. if I hear that term one more time? I'm mean, not- my eyeballs out
0: it's not just the it's not just the fact that you know he's missing this is not a talent is- issue i don't think necessarily because i watched titus howard there's one particular play and it was highlighted by a couple people on twitter x or whatever it was highlighted up there there's a play where the running back gets met in the backfield because titus missed the block as he was trying to pull just whiffed didn't even get close to the guy well, that's bad enough. But I think it was Singletary was still trying to make something happen. He was still trying to break tackles. He was still trying to do something. Titus, instead of going to find somebody else to block and helping him out, he just stands there, looks around, you know, picks his nose and doesn't do anything. I mean, there are guys coming left and right and that are still coming while Devin Singletary's trying to get out of it. If you help him out, Singletary almost got out of that first. And, and you mentioned there's a couple of times where Titus misses guys. And and it's it's also – it drives me nuts, Sean, because there's just way too many times that the best player, one of the best defenders on their team, whoever that opponent is for the Texans, basically comes in unblocked. How, how does that happen? Yeah, how many how, how times does that happen
1: happened with Burns this last weekend? I mean, uh, at least a couple of three times that I noticed where – Fant was completely lost on one. Burns was lined up in like a wide nine, really up close to the line of scrimmage, like he was going to show blitz. And it was like him and maybe the DN playing like a five technique or something. it's like, okay, who are you going to go get? Well, there's this guy that's really good, is number zero, and he constantly causes havoc. I should probably get hands on him. Completely the, the Texans long.
0: remember they had J.J. Watt, the best defensive guy in the league. And they knew, like, we're going to put two, three guys. We're putting two or three. It is the focus of the entire week of stopping J.J. Watt. We saw T.J. Watt come in a couple of times when the Texans played against the Steelers. He was unblocked. Like, like The plan was, hey, we're not just don't block him. He's coming in unblocked or we're letting our running back take care of him. That's what we're doing. Come on.
1: It's not even just the offensive line. I mean, there's a multitude of issues. You know, we mentioned the tight end. But look, no Damian Pierce at practice on a Wednesday. He shows up on the injury report uh, with an ankle injury. The last play that he had was the last time that we saw and are going to see at least this season, presumably, But was when Jarek Patterson went down. And I'm going to go back and look uh, this evening to see if I can see maybe there's an instance in which, you know, he tweaked hurt that ankle. But that's going to be a big time blow for the Texans in terms of their run game or lack thereof. Because now you're going to be relying upon Mike Boone, Devin Singletary, and probably Adarian Gumbawale, you know, who's been active, but has been just a special teams contributor at this point in time. Mike Boone's probably been the most consistent guy that's been used uh, most sparingly. His role is probably going to have to increase against this Buccaneers team. And if that's the case, then somebody's going to have to carry the load from him on a special team standpoint. So there's a trickle-down effect here, and it's how much can the Texans possibly continue to withstand against a, by the way, a very opportunistic and physical Tampa Bay Buccaneer defense. They lead the entire league in differential in terms of giveaway-takeaway. They're a plus eight. They intercept the ball, they force fumbles, they get stops. That's going to be a very, very difficult challenge this weekend for the Texans.
0: Yeah, 14 turnovers so far on the year for them, averaging two per game, like you said, number one in the NFL. You mentioned Damian Pierce being questionable. If he can't play, this gives Bobby Slowick yet another reason to start throwing the football more. Somehow, some way, the crappy team... The crappiest team, or close to it, in the NFL and running the football was given more handoffs last week than through than throwing the football, and, and they lost the game. And it's also worth mentioning, Sean, Tampa's pass defense, fifth worst in the NFL.
1: Yeah, there was a stat that I wanted to get to. I'm glad you kind of brought that up and helped, helped remind me. There's a chart. Uh, I, I tweeted it out, if you, if you haven't seen it already, uh, at Sean Bajani on Twitter. Not X, it's Twitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> early down pass rates this season through the Texans' first seven games, they are the second worst in the league at early down pass rate. They're throwing it the second fewest times early in downs out of any team in the league next to Arizona. And I think it's just tremendous. Like, you go back and just take this Carolina game as a good example because it's been a common trend. There's a reason why they're 31st in the league at early pass down rate. I think through their first 12 opportunities on first downs,
0: they threw it one time. Is Bobby Slowick bad at self-scouting then, if, that's, if this is the case?
1: I don't, I don't know if it's – what do you mean self-scouting? Like, in terms of identifying trends – yeah, um, your own trends. You no, know, I, I I I don't believe that at all. I think he's just hell bent on the the logic that you know what if we're going to have this identity of being a team that is going to be hell bent on running the football and we're just we're we're going to be physical until we're just blue in the face. I, I think he's stuck there. Let me put it to you this way, and this is what I examined on, in in my recent piece on SportsRadio16.com is his biggest flaw is actually multifaceted but I think his biggest flaw is identifying how to use his playmakers, almost thinking about showing tendencies too much. Everybody knows everybody's best receiver. Everybody knows who can run the ball and who can't run the ball, like just by the talent they have in the backfield, right? But you know to to be successful, Nico Collins and Tank Dell and when healthy – Robert Woods, they're going to get the bulk of the targets, right? Well, I think Sloak overthinks things, and he doesn't exactly know. And put yourself in this position, too, as an offensive play caller. Like, how do I get the best players the ball without it being obvious to my defense? That's a very difficult job. And I think he's clearly shown the propensity to overthink things not just within games, but from week to week. And they keep saying, we're going to do what we do. We're not going to let the defense dictate, you know, to us what we're doing because that's when you start thinking too much. I mean, that's been clearly the message from Dabiko Ryans, Bobby Slowick, C.J. Stroud again today at the podium. They're not walking the walk as much as they're talking to talk in that regard. And so, look, they need to run the ball. You can't give up on the run game. Certainly not in this system, but you're going to have to figure out a different way to get there. And I think that is number one and 1A uh, for Bobby Sloat to show a very quick adjustment. It's got to start this week against the Bucks.
0: They're favored by two and a half for the second straight week. So Sharps believe, you know, the Vegas Sharps believe these two teams, Sean, are basically dead even on a neutral field.
1: Yeah. Hey, look, we talked about it, right? When you asked me a couple of weeks ago to, or was it last week, to... We went through the whole schedule and we picked wins and losses and <laughs> damn near got this Texans team going through it as a 10 11 week uh, 11 win squad at least I did right and it's tough because as good as the Texans have looked with CJ Stroud and more than just flashes I mean look when this was a three and three football team before this Carolina game I mean we were feeling fantastic about the situation with injuries included there is just so many games on the Texans schedule where yeah They flip a coin, man. I mean, if they play their brand of uh, football that they say they want to, sure. With the type of play that you're getting from your quarterback, he's not getting sacked a ton. He's not turning the ball over. I mean, he's on pace for one of the best touchdown-to-interception ratios we've ever seen from a rookie quarterback. I mean, he's 9-1 and right now, I think. Sure, why not? They should be in every game with an opportunity to win. Hey, it's a home game. Tampa's lost three in a row, four out of their last five. Baker Mayfield hasn't taken great care of the football despite how aggressive and physical and opportunistic their defense is, they're giving the ball away too. They've thrown uh, six, seven interceptions, I believe, uh, at this point in time in the season. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it's like four or five with Baker, but they've obviously shown a propensity to, to, to be careless with the football. And this Texans defense, which is coming off of its maybe most productive Week in terms of at least seeing results in a pass rush. We know what Steven Nelson can do in the secondary. Jimmy Ward's back there healthy. Jalen Petrie's back there healthy. They're struggling a little bit. Kadar Holman showed up on the injury report, their other corner today. Shaq Griffin's been in and out, too, up and down. But I like the Texans' chances in the secondary against uh, Baker Mayfield at quarterback. And yeah, I get Mike Evans. I guess Chris Godwin. I, I get all that. But the Texans have shown just as much as any other team how opportunistic they can be against a team that likes to pass the ball like the Buccaneers do.
0: The other tight end that you didn't mention and I don't even know if I'm saying his name right they just signed Eric Salbert, which just seems like a dude he's not anybody yeah. that anybody should be all that excited about. A body. Yeah he's a, a just a body. body.
1: You know look it's I really don't think it's out of the question to see Andrew Beck used a little bit differently against the Bucks, and it maybe it's a maybe it's kind of a perfect storm I'll put it that way right like, sure, they're they're low on the tight end front. Uh, Dalton Schultz, we know he can catch the ball. We know he can get open. We know he can catch through contact. But, heck, you just got to get him the ball more maybe. And you've got to figure out a better way to do it because – disguising him as a chipper and as a run blocker, you know, um, where he leaks out. I mean, that's not where he's, – he's, he's a terrible run blocker, and he's made, this is maybe the worst year of him run blocking uh, in his career. At least he'd been somewhat serviceable in the last couple of three years with the Dallas Cowboys and maybe even shown the ability to slightly improve. Well, it's not the case this year. Maybe you put him in the slot more. Maybe he stands up, he doesn't block – Maybe you use Andrew Beck in that regard. You're able to show like some two tight end sets with him and Schultz there. You go three wide on one side with just one running back. You work the play action a little bit more. You have some more options underneath and in the flat. Maybe you take some early shots deep to kind of open that run game up. Hopefully as the game kind of goes along. um, I think there might be an opportunity here for the Texans to kind of forcibly get more creative in terms of The way that Slowick calls the game. When people talk about creativity, I think they automatically think of like all these funky formations and pre-snap motions. Slowik's doing that. But sometimes they're called in the wrong instance, you know. They were trying to run Tank Dell pre-snap motion on that delay of game. You can't be calling that play when you're so damn slow to the line in that instance on your final possession of the game in a tight one like that in the fourth quarter. you got to get to the ball and boom, go. Maybe spread it out a little bit more. Maybe the Texans are forced to do that this week against the Bucs, and maybe it works out for them.
0: All right. Well, let's uh, get your thoughts out there, everybody that's listening right now. What do you think the Texans should do differently? How do you get the running game going? Give us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love some ideas because – the Texans need some ideas, and yeah. maybe we we haven't come up with an idea that you like. So let's hear from you. Don't forget our, our Rockets uh, show that we just did a couple of days ago, if you missed it. Great conversation with Frank from Rockets Chop Shop, so go check that out. But, Sean, we got to talk a little bit about the Astros managerial search because it's on. The only thing I know right now is if the Astros hired Brad Ausmus, then they burned the entire Minute Maid Park. The fans come with pitchforks. They burn the park down. Uh, they hate. If, look, if you're friends with Jeff Bagwell right now, you're not allowed near Minute Maid. Like if you've if you've had a dinner or lunch with Jeff Bagwell, if there's pictures out there, that Jeff Bagwell likes you. Uh, lunch, dinner, you you guys were seeing having coffee or something like that. Don't bother coming to the ballpark. Don't bother coming to Minute Maid Park as a member of the Houston Astros.
1: Isn't that so funny? Because if you have rewound, just pre-cheating scandal like so 2019 let's just say the astros for a different reason were in search of a new manager if you even mentioned brad osmus then people would be like yeah let's go brad osmus especially all the women right because he's so handsome and then jeff bagwell at the time like oh man yeah jeff course, Hall of Famer, you know, great playing career. Was a hitting coach, sure. Like we're going to listen to him. He knows his baseball. Boy, how things can change in just a short amount of time. You know, a three four year span. I mean, I get it. I I don't have as much hate, <laughs> you know, as as uh, most people do for Brad Osmus. I do, oddly kind of have maybe a little bit more faith in Jim Crane in his final decision-making because, look, he is the final decision-maker. It's his team. He's the owner. I, I have more faith in his decision-making. And if he determines that maybe Brad Ausmus is a guy, cool. If Jeff Bannister's a guy, cool. If Joe is the guy, their current bench coach, cool. Whatever he decides, I feel like I, I should be good with because he's done right by the city, by the organization more times than not. He's facilitated some of the biggest moves since he he's he's taken ownership of this organization. So I think we des- he deserves a little bit of that credit as well and benefit of the doubt to this point.
0: Yeah, he sort of lost, obviously, some of his GM credit last year when he signed the Montero contract when we didn't have a GM. And, yeah, yeah. you know, that the. the the Abreu people have kind of come back a little bit to Abreu, but still, you wonder who they were bidding against. You wonder why they had to give him three years at that amount of money, knowing that, you know, there was a big possibility that there, there was going to be a slight downturn in what he was going to be able to do. I also feel like, look, Brad Osmus for those Astros, for that other Astros, and I know the other Astros there didn't have quite the winning, but dang. I mean, when Brad Osmus was there, Astros were in the playoffs practically every year, just like this Astros team. They yeah. didn't have the guns. They didn't have the guns at that time that this Astros team did. Look, that that those teams, you were mad at Brad Ausmus more often than not because they didn't have the lineup that was anywhere close to the lineup that the Astros have in, in this era. And the other thing is, you know, it, there wasn't a manager up there that was just, you know, telling you every day, well, we're sticking Brad Ausmus in there instead of, this, you know, guy that's hitting 350 or what, you know, whatever Yonar Diaz was doing. But Brad Ossman's had has had two managerial stints. He had about 90-plus wins his first year in Detroit. And then a couple of years after that, it went down. But so did that talent level with the, the Tigers' talent level started to go down as well. And then he goes to the Angels, and he has one bad year with the Angels. Well, nobody's been able to win with the Angels. Joe Baden, in the in the managerial search, he was with the Angels. He's the, He went. He's gone. Socia was considered a really good manager, and then they finally cut him loose. And and it's just because it's a poorly built roster or organization and the way they run. I mean, we know that from the Angels. So him failing with the Angels or failing with that Tigers team and where it was at that time, you know, I think it's a little bit overstated if you're an Astros fan.
1: I think, you know, failure in a lot of respects, when when you're a, a young manager, you know, breaking in, Look, you're you're gonna get some of the worst jobs uh, to start out uh, more times than not. You know, not everybody lucks into a, a Yankees gig or a Red Sox gig or a Dodgers gig or a Cardinals gig, right? Hey, this is kind of very old school. Look, even some of the greatest ball players, they were offered opportunities opportunities <laughs> to coach minor league teams before a major league team. Or, you know, you look, you're going to start off with this organization that's a perennial loser and earn your stripes that way. I don't. I don't really put a whole lot of stock in terms of the results of what Brad Ausmus, you know, failed to do in Detroit and and Los Angeles. It's let's just go off of the top two things that Dana Brown says he's looking for in a manager, which is very blah, right? Like what GM and ownership group isn't looking for this in their next manager leadership and somebody to control the clubhouse. That's like one in one a right. I mean, can Brad Ausmus do that uh, a, a baseball lifer, somebody that knows certainly is a catcher, I know he knows the game. Um, there's no doubt about that. But can he lead? You know, can he identify the pulse of a clubhouse, of a team, when times are good, when times are bad, know when it's time for a change here or there, like... Those aren't necessarily the easiest things to go about. And you're talking about a guy who did it for six decades in Dusty Baker who's still being lauded for that special quality. If it was that easy, everybody could take care of that one. Anybody can run out of lineup card, especially when you're talking about an Astros lineup like this, right? Dusty even caught hell for that nine times out of ten. But, hey, if it's Brad Ausmus, if it's whoever it is, I, I just I don't know if the Astros are in a position to where they need – a big splash. They need people to be excited about this. You think people are going to be excited if it's Joe Espada? I mean, I feel like the Astros are in a a situation where they're going to garner much more hate for whoever they choose versus more excitement for whoever they choose. And that's just kind of where you are in the lexicon of this dynastic run that they're on is you're not going to please everybody anyways certainly not at this point coming off of the heels of a guy in Dusty Baker, who took you to multiple world series and won one.
0: Can you pull off, can the new manager pull off wristbands with your face on it? No. Do you, do you make a good Merlot? We're looking for a guy that can sell a good Merlot, a good uh, Cabernet, something like that. We're looking for somebody that, you know, might've run into Hank Aaron and, you know, played with him and, you know, possibly cool Papa Bell. And, you know, it's it's a high bar for the Astros manager. You can't can't be anything. You've got to be a guy that comes in and is immediately hateful towards Chandler Roan because that's a prerequisite.
1: I don't know. I think he kind of breeds hatred anyway, naturally, for, for most people. <laughs> <laughs> no matter who it is, they're going to hate Chandler Rome right off the bat. So you check that box. There's no doubt. It's certainly not going to be Ron Washington, I don't think, right? And that's a question, a big one for the Astros, that Jim Crane, Dana Brown, Jeff Bagwell, all that are involved have to be discussing at this point. Is And this I'm a Joe Espada guy for one reason culture. He'd been there through Hinch been there with Baker. Nobody understands the clubhouse as currently constructed as Joe Espada. It's not like you have to fill a whole bunch of holes this winter. Anyway, you've got five free agents. That's it. And maybe a trade here or there, maybe you make an improvement here or there, but in large part, most of your team's coming back again for another year, another run at this thing. Nobody gets it more than Joe Espada. And according to reports, players love the guy. Um, they know he knows his baseball, and look, who's better suited to get this opportunity, his first managerial job, than a guy that has garnered serious considerations from some big ball clubs over the years. I think San Francisco, I think Cleveland he'd interviewed and, you know, did really well with, just lost out, maybe he was the second guy in line. I'm, I'm looking hard at him because of a culture fit. But here's the question that you got to be having, the conversation you got to be having just because he knows the culture and there's not a culture problem. Do we need to keep it status quo? Is stagnation a bad thing? Is it the right time for a little bit of a change, for a little bit of a different kind of voice? Um, Somebody that's going to come in and be more of an ass kicker instead of a guy that's going to steady the ship or just steer this thing to not crash and burn? I think that's a real conversation that Dana Brown, Jim Crane, Jeff Bagwell, all these guys involved have to have right now.
0: Or do you guys out there, think should be the next Astros manager. Let us know. Put it in the comments. We want to hear from you. Sean, good catching up with you. Let's do it again on Sunday. I'm ready for another football game.
1: Let's do it, man. Always look forward to it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
0: Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.